if you say something well, you say it concisely and you say it in a way that is moving, people respond to that, whether they like poetry normally or not. Getting Better Acquainted's sister show, Stand Up Tragedy, is going up to the Edinburgh Festival. We're going to be doing an hour of tragedy every day as part of the PBH Free Fringe at the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Hall from the 2nd till the 24th of August. If you're in Edinburgh, come along and see the tragedy. Also, getting better acquainted for five days only, we'll be doing live conversations at the Royal Oak at 3.15pm every day from the 18th till the 22nd of August. So come and get better acquainted at the Edinburgh Festival. I want to do a poem about the word revolution because I find it really interesting that as well as a word about political change, it's a word about movement specifically relating to movement that begins and ends in the exact same place with no forward progress. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Sophia Walker. Hello, Sophia. Hello. <laughs> so the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Uh, I can't remember whether I just pitched up to a stand-up tragedy or whether you booked me, but yeah. it's through stand-up tragedy. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure of that either. I know, I mean, I know we booked you. Was it maybe we first communicated about the spoken word CD that I made for the Free Fringe spoken word people last year? I think it was before that. Was it? Oh no, because I used your recording on it. Yeah. I know what it was. It was at the Dog Star in Brixton and I went to go see Lucy Ayrton. This was like Ah, two years ago. Right, right, right. That's what it was. So I came to see it and then you booked me. Yeah. I started doing Stand Up Tragedy and... um, I guess most of how we know each other outside of the professional world is through Facebook. Right, yeah, 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 exactly. That's an interesting thing where you get kind of a lot more of an idea of people who you've only seen a few times in real life uh, yeah. through Facebook, don't you? I don't think I was that familiar with your work when I booked you and then you blew me away when, when you performed, so Thank that was you. really great. And then we sort of, uh, I've booked you as much as I can <laughs> since then and seen your shows in Edinburgh and stuff and uh, I'm really, really excited by what you do, yeah. Thank you. And I'm kind of pleased as well that you slightly been being recognized for the, the excellent work that you've done as well so that's been really good like you got you sort of got some awards and stuff last it, year. it was a lovely minute and a half of um, <laughs> no longer being totally invisible yeah well it was well deserved and uh, yeah I mean I know I've, I've, awards are a strange thing and I feel quite ambivalent around the uh, them as well particularly because I'm only ever nominated for them I never actually win them um, <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> you need to start bribing in advance. That's all I do. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're a poet, would you say? Is that what you describe yourself as? Um, yeah, I guess writer might be at this point just because the poetry world since the recession has become harder and harder to make a living at. So I've had to diversify into other areas. And um, I'm now well, last year I did my first debut solo show at Edinburgh and I'm coming up with another show this year that's almost more of a play it's still the last show was an epic poem and this one is still entirely constructed of of poems it's in verse but it is a lot more of a play right and i would say i'm probably at this point looking to move more into doing shows and doing fringe circuits as as someone who books spoken word regularly and I, i even do a bit of it here and there i've been seeing like that that move happening with a few people like towards yeah. theater from spoken word shows i think I don't know about anyone else, but for me what it comes down to is that I think I've risen about as far as I'm going to go in, in spoken word. It's it's not really a world that that many people get mm. far in. Right. And I think I've hit the upper limits of my talent. And I'm good, but I'm not great. And you need to be great. And I think I've discovered that I'm better at shows and I think there's more growth that's going to happen for me. At shows, so I don't know. It's I wouldn't say it's walking away from from poetry. I'll always do it, but I just think I'm not. I'm never going to make it through poetry. 
Interesting. I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would uh, respectfully disagree with your assessment of your quality, but at the same time, I understand. I, I would say similar things about myself. I'm no Andrea Gibson. I'm no Shane Kaizen. You know. Yeah, but and there's like, always the person that you really admire that you feel like you're not. And I'm not saying that you are those yeah. people, but you're yourself. And but you're if you're gonna make a living, like we we all have friends who are full-time poets and who are over fifty, and we've seen what that looks like. Right. Yeah. And at least in my case. That kind of scares me, you know? So I have to diversify, I have to think ahead. Well, it's interesting as well, because I feel like a lot of things are kind of, a lot of areas of the arts at the moment are kind of, I'm seeing anyway, within my art bubble, so whether it's reality or not, um, seem to be coming towards spoken word from different directions. So I see a lot of storytelling developing. Uh, Comedy is kind of a lot of, alternative comedians are going towards storytelling um and like less like going for the laughs spoken word people are going more towards uh yeah again storytelling again i mean i it's, think it's spoken word is gonna blow yeah. in the uk it and be like on the it. sort of level it's in the states i think that's gonna happen sometime in the next five years yeah but i think everyone that's currently in it is too old <laughs> the person who's going to be at the forefront when it's when it blows yeah. is someone who's currently 15 and writing in a bedroom somewhere like the the truth about the arts world as soon as you hit 25 you age out of most of the funding opportunities a lot of the the programs and the growth pretty much all you've got left at that point is the arts council and the arts council while doing amazing work is massively overstretched already you know they need a significantly larger chunk of funding than yeah and for sure they're saying no more than they're saying yes and they're taking away things they previously have funded yeah and they're doing the best that they can but they're playing with a losing hand and so yeah, the the people who are going to benefit when spoken word grows and and, and explodes aren't going to be the people that built it or like the people that are in it currently. We didn't build it, you know. No, Kevin Cadwallader is one of the people that built it. You know, he was running spoken word nights and effectively slams in Edinburgh in the early seventies, like. And and these are not the people that are going to benefit either. Right. I mean, it's been growing for a, for a, for a while. I mean, I'm finding it interesting to see that like it's not just the people who were originally growing it like in those genres. Like you got a lot more like uh, there's a lot of nights that are like lecture nights or science nights or whatever. Yeah. Like it, people are like going, and I think it's because audiences and performers are hungering for that direct interaction between audience and performer because you I don't think, really get it yeah. uh, in most of our media. Which I don't get me wrong, our media is great, but. I think promoters yeah. were astonished by the success of TED Talks, and I think that... Right, TED Talks is another place to come Yeah, and I think you're seeing the proliferation of TED Talks in sort of live models. I mean, people are meeting up in bars, bars in London to, like, live-tweet Prime Minister's questions. Yeah. Collectively. Right, well, yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I, I've been... To, I mean, the, uh, the live-tweeting one that I went to was, uh, of, yeah, question time, generally question time, but, yeah, yeah, and that was a, an interesting... That was a really interesting night. I don't know if... Uh, Natalie, who is running it, was running it, is going to run it more. But yeah, it's and it's really fascinating to see that happen. And yeah, yeah, I think this all comes back effectively to stuff like TED Talks and promoters suddenly going, huh, okay, the intellectuals want, you know, live interaction back again. It's it's effectively like a literary salon on some kind of steroid. <laughs> yeah, indeed, that's a good quote. People should uh, use it for their billboards. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so the second question I ask people, which we're already sort of covering, is what what do you do now? Uh, so if someone asks you that at a party, what do you say? Um, I teach workshops. I compete in slams. I tour around teaching and performing poetry sets. And I recently started touring my first show around the world, Nate Mistakes. And I will, will begin to start touring my new show, Can't Care, Won't Care, as of September. And Around the World in Eight Mistakes kind of does what it says on the tin. It, as you say, an epic poem where you go around the world in eight mistakes. It's all true, though. It's yeah. all true, sort of true storytelling in poetry form. I'm not very imaginative. All of my stuff's true. Yeah, but I mean, if you've had a lots of, th- if you've had eight eight mistakes in different <laughs> parts of the world, then you might as well write about that, right? Mm. <laughs> a bit, bit of a mistake to to go with fiction when you've got so much to draw from in your non-fiction. Yeah. I've had too mad cap of life to need to imagine anything really. Okay, right. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. So, you, I mean, you're, you, people listening to you might think that you, because you, your accent changes, but today it sounds quite UK-based. Yeah. And so they would might go, oh, she's a, a, UK, a UK-based poet, but it's more complicated than that, your kind of origins in, t- in global yeah. terms, yeah. So, like, uh, English is my second language, and I learned it in America, and that's why the accent 
flits because my parents are English but when I was like nine days old we moved to the Soviet Union we lived in Moscow until the Berlin Wall came down and then we moved to the States and it was at that point that I learned English so I initially spoke English with an American accent right and so and you so you, you lived your early life in bef- in Russia before the wall came down yeah that was fascinating yeah I imagine I mean what was it like I don't, re- like, really, one of the only things I remember is the supermarket where all of the shelves were empty, and by the door there were these massively tall wire cages, and I was tiny, so they were probably only, like, three feet, and they were half full with beach balls, and that was the only thing for sale in the entire shop. Uh, it was one of those cities where if you saw a line, you joined it because there might be food at the end of it. You know, like, only high-ranking members of the Communist Party and important foreigners could um, shop in the Communist Party shops that were actually stocked. The rest of us joined lines and bought what we could, and after Chernobyl, it was all radioactive, but there was nothing you could do about that, so you ate it anyway. Right, yeah. Yeah, in- indeed. I've, I mean, like, so you, your family moved when the war came down. Like, I mean... yeah. Why Why was that? Was that like to um, do with the political element? My dad was a just... political journalist and he had been the um, bureau chief of the Moscow desk and they, they moved him to become bureau chief of the Washington desk. Right, okay. That's, yeah, a, a reasonable reason. Yeah. And so you went to, how old were you when you went to America then? Uh, four and a half. Right. So, you're, so that's why you don't have very many memories of, of, yeah. of, of, of pre-war Russia. But I mean, what was it like going to America from Russia? I remember that nothing was really different. There was just more food on the shelves. And my parents both agree that there was no difference between America in the 90s and communist Russia in the 80s, except for the fact that you could buy more stuff. Right, Okay. That's an an interesting observation, for sure. Yeah, I think this is why politically I'm a realist above everything else. Yeah, yeah. I've seen too much of, of, of the extremes and just been like, yeah, it's all the same bollocks. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy with that point of view. That would probably make sense to you, as we tend to agree on Facebook. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, yeah, so what part of America did you go to? Uh, we moved to Washington, D.C., and uh, we were there for a while through the Clinton years, and then Belgium, and then London, and then back to D.C., and since then I've lived in Uganda for a while, Vietnam for a bit, Scotland for a while. How did you end up sort of from being someone who is living in Washington to live to being in Uganda like how did that well I moved to the UK for university but right. I worked during from about 15 I started freelancing as a journalist and then from 19 in the holidays I worked on the national desk of UPI which is a wire service and in 2004 they were having the Republican National Convention in New York where they were gonna you know formally nominate Bush as their presidential nominee and there was going to be a massive protest so I went to my edi- editors and I asked them if I could go up and cover the protests and call it Idiot's Guide to the Counter, counter Convention and because it's a wire service I managed to sell it to the biggest conservative newspaper in the US and it was a week-long diary of a protester Wow! and uh, I found a place to stay for free on the internet this guy who said he was putting up protesters and he was a documentary filmmaker and uh, the only proviso was that you had to be prepared to let him film you. And we became friends, and I was a theatre teacher at the time, and his next film was for National Geographic, and it was this film of a, a tribe who lived in northern Uganda who had no art in their culture. Oh, and okay. there were a lot of reasons we were filming them, but the, the hook of it was going to be that I got hired to show them what theatre was, how to act and direct them in a play. Okay. So a massive act of cultural imperialism. Yeah, glad you said it. But, um, <laughs> the, the reason we were going is because this, this cultural anthropologist had gone there in the 70s and wrote this book called The Mountain People, where he called them the most evil, violent, cannibalistic people on earth. Right. But neglected to mention till the last 30 pages of the book that for the two years he lived with them, they were starving. Right. That's like, a very interesting They were formerly admission. a nomadic tribe, and at the end of World War II, the Ugandan government made their nomadic area into a national park and evicted them onto a mountain. Yeah. If you've never farmed before in your life, try farming on the side of a fucking mountain. Yeah. So we went to correct the story on them. Brilliant. So it was subtitled, The Worst People in the World. Right, that's, well, you've got two hooks for that. That's a, a, it's yeah. an excellent... Um, so we were there, but um, I'm stupid, so I didn't realise when I said yes to the gig that uh, it was in the middle of two war zones at the same time. Yeah, 
that was interesting. Yeah, a bit different from the UK or Washington. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was a fascinating experience. I grew up very quickly. and Yeah, because um, how old were you when you went there? Like, 20. Yeah, so it's just, I mean, I, was, I think of myself at 20 and I, I'm, st- I'm still a... I'm still a child, really. I mean, I would not have liked that assessment of myself when I was 20, but when I look back... I grew up fast. I feel, I probably feel worse for the people who were with me because I was the young, it was just four of us, but the next youngest member of the crew after me was 35 and the cameraman was 54. And, like, a guy called David Pluth, he's one of the seven original founders of Greenpeace, so, like, a dude of some status right. having to spend three months in the outback with this idiot 20-year-old. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of, we all had our heads screwed on straight and, and knew how to adapt to the situation we were in. Right. Well, that's an impressive thing to be able to do. I don't know if I could uh, adapt to a, a, a situation like but that. But there's two quickly. key things, and one is that you don't have a choice, and the yeah. other is that you have an exit date. Right. Because, no one yeah, else around exactly. you does. And that's the weirdest part of being in that sort of situation, when you know that you're leaving, and you're leaving everyone you come into contact with there, and you never know if you're going to... Well, you know that you're probably never going to see them again. Yeah. I mean... So when you did that pro- did that project work out? Is it? A yeah, thing? when we released the film, it ended up winning uh, best content at the Boston International Film Festival, which was pretty cool. That's good, and like I mean, it, you sort of t- touch on on that experience uh, quite a lot in in around the world, you know, yeah. mistakes, and it's it tends to be the section that you choose to use as stand up tragedy as well, right? Yeah, because you in, it was quite an intense like experience that you had there, I guess. Yeah. What, what, what I know to a certain extent about it, but I mean, obviously, memory forgets things anyway. But uh, but yeah, what 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 would you, was there? Is there anything you could share about that that you um, feel comfortable sharing? I guess. I guess the the strangest thing, because we started off in Kampala, and the war was pretty much exclusively in the north, and where we were filming was on the other side of that, still in the north. So we sort of had to drive through it. And the thing that struck me the most was how textured war zones are. Because, you know, you're going to go for miles and everything's normal. And then you start to see just miles of refugee camps. And then you start to see villages that people have just completely abandoned. And then you start to see, you know, villages that have been burned to the ground and, and you can hear gunfire and stuff. And it's I never really imagined how textured it was. You kind of think of war as everywhere, and it's actually much more locational than that. And it moves, and it changes direction very quickly. And you need, especially these days with the nature of war, you need very well-informed, intelligent networks of of locals just spreading from village to village, whether they need to flee or not. And when you you look at somewhere like Syria, that's exactly what's going on there as well. It's, It's the nature of modern warfare, I think, because our experience growing up in the West of War is, is just what we learned in the history class about World War Two. We yeah. think of fronts. Right. And it's it's that's a, a massive misconception of what war's actually like. Think of it more as like the balls on a billiard table. Just moving around and changing direction quickly and smashing into each other and you just get rolling pockets. Yeah, um that's um, yeah, that's a very good point. I mean that's that is the weird thing now that our conception of war is totally based on films about a war that is, is first of all, the, the films we see aren't accurate necessarily yeah. either. Um, but yeah, the, the, the modern war is very different. And people don't realise that we're at war as well, even though we're at so many wars. Yeah. Right? People don't really think about it that way because it's not like officially been declared a world war and we're all able to sit in a sunny garden in London and, and be safe, right? Yeah. So we don't realise that there's a war going on all around us. Well, especially because the the way that terrorism works is that you have long periods of quiet where they let you build up a safe sense, a full sense of security and then they hit you where there is no war, where it's totally peaceful. You right. know, they hit you in the countries where you've forgotten about it in your major city on a Tuesday afternoon kind of thing. Indeed. So it's actually very important for that to work, for you to have long periods in between where you feel safe and you take that for granted. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, insight on, on that. And I guess like one of the things that comes out of the, the, the extract that you, you've done at Stand Up Tragedy is a sort of sense of like... like 
guilt I guess maybe around your experiences that you couldn't do more or you couldn't I think, engage I think the guilt that, that everyone has even down to the kid who's you know daddy buys them a month at uh, a shelter in Kenya for, for their university CV and the guilt that you have is that you walk away yeah right exactly and you were an observer you were more than that you were a parasite you know you don't do these things for free in some cases we pay but in in even when we're volunteering we're doing it to feel good about ourselves or we're doing it for the experience right you were doing it to make a film that got appreciation critically right none of these things are an altruistic (laughs) act yeah and all of us sit there and talk about how you know everyone's problem is my problem and blah 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 and the left's all about foreign investment and development and when it comes down to it, we don't go there and we don't stay. You know, we're parasites. And I think any experience in the third world that's legitimate only serves to reveal to yourself how much of a hypocrite you are and how much all of those things you always hoped about yourself, like being a hero and all that kind of stuff, how that's just not true. And I think those are difficult things to accept for people and I wonder when people are you know going through that that process when you leave and you're returning to to first world and readjusting and culture shock if part of what's going on is not actually guilt so much as grief for knowing that about yourself no one wants to know they're a weak person right right and you know you can play it off as guilt and stuff because that makes you feel better but I think it's more that Going to see what life is like for the majority of the world's population is your own weaknesses and failings staring at you in the face. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel that way when I look at the the news, so I can only imagine how much more intense it is to physically be confronted with that reality, right? And you went to... Vietnam as well. I mean, yeah. was that a sim? Like, it wasn't a war zone at that time. <laughs> has no, has been. That but. was mainly just because I got really bored and I had to go somewhere insane. Um, so I went. To, <laughs> I went to teach English, and uh, it was it was fascinating um, because for for reasons that make an awful lot of sense, Vietnamese people don't really hang out with expats. There's there's no real um, exchange there at all. So your social circle ends up being expats. And uh, it turns out I hate expats. They're the, they're the exact kinds of people I left the West to get away from. <laughs> they're hanging out there in like wife beaters and, and board shorts and calling each other bro. Okay. Except they're in their 30s and they've got bad goatees and it's just awful. <laughs> that, yeah, that doesn't paint a, a party I'd like to attend. South Vietnam is wicked, but Hanoi, which is in the north and which is where I was living, is, is sort of the worst possible culmination of East meeting West. So, like, on one side you've got KFC and, like, uh, skyscrapers, and then on the other side you've got people living under a tarpaulin on the street because if they're living under a tarpaulin, they have more status than the person next to them who's just directly sleeping on the street. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, your show is about the mistakes you've made in your life, but almost it's like a tour of the mistakes that the West has made, if you like, <laughs> or the capitalism or whatever, as we know it now, is, has made. Yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to write political shows, and uh, then I realised when I took it up to Edinburgh that the last one was very political, and the new one is, um, well, I mean, it's, it's the care industry versus the state. Right. It's, it's as political as you can get. Yeah, uh, but I think the thing is, if you write personal stuff, like the personal is the political, and so <laughs> it's very hard to like avoid it. If if yeah, if you've experienced any 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 significant like clashes within culture in your life, yeah, you've, 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 I think you've experienced quite a few culture clashes in lots of different ways. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is an, an interesting position to be in, um, and why maybe part of the reason that you you know have an, a unique kind of to me anyway a unique perspective on these things. I've been very very lucky. I was uh, definitely set up to be a writer. It's well, you were doing it at 15, you said, like you were like a journalist at 15. That right? was more being cheeky, because um, <laughs> I lived in Washington, D.C. when 9-11 happened, and the school that I went to was the school where all the ambassadors' kids went. 
And as of September 12th, all the journalists in Washington wanted to know what the rest of the world felt and wanted quotes from the ambassadors and stuff. And it's not like an ambassador can say anything. Right. So I went to their kids and asked them what their parents were saying at the dinner table. Wow. And I quoted the kids. And that was a backdoor into what each country was actually saying. Wow. And so it got picked up everywhere. I mean, is, was that, is that, it's a complicated ethical area, right? Well, I was 15, so yeah, yeah, I'm it's kind of... I'm, I'm not saying that there's an easy answer either Yeah, way. it was a little bit shady. Um, <laughs> I've never, I maintain I've never gotten anywhere because I'm good. I've gotten somewhere because I'm crafty and I'm nowhere near where I want to be. I'm, I'm a nobody. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm only a nobody because I've been crafty. If I hadn't been crafty, then I wouldn't be body of any form. Right, okay. I, th- I think that's a fair, a fair assessment. I mean, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, so, what was your reaction to being like to nine eleven, being someone who was in the city? Uh, my dad was in the Pentagon right. uh, when it happened, so that was quite scary because yeah. we didn't. I managed to get hold of him for four hours, and the, uh, and the Pentagon was also, yeah. Was yeah, also. and like because of my school and all the kids that went there, we got put under um, lockdown by the National Guard as soon as it happened. Um, so that was kind of intense. Yeah. But that night and every night after for about two weeks, all the people in my neighborhood every night sat on their porch steps with candles and drinks and got to know each other. Like it didn't last all that long, maybe three months, but America was a very different place to live after 9-11 in a beautiful way. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing when something like that happens. It does have an effect. Like even, so I mean, I I remember nine eleven and like I mean, I wrote a poem. That's what I did. I wrote a poem for the like fifteen days of like the news coverage afterwards, like trying to get every angle. You know, trying to sort of work out what I felt about it through words, as as I sometimes do. In fact, I always do in times of crisis. I think, um, but I was just like you know, convinced that the third world, like the literal third world war rather than the war we're actually having now was going to happen. That, you know, I mean, my dad was in World War Two. I'm not, I'm a pacifist, right? I don't, I'm not going to fight in a war. Like, in fact, if a war happens, it's going to be a tricky situation for me because I'm probably going to get a lot more grief from my own state than any, any, any other. But yeah, I, I mean, but also it gave you that sense of like, valuing everything was heightened so uh, like human beings that you love were more you loved them more like you you, you know the, the beautiful things you saw more like as as always is the case when you have like which is why that one of the reasons i'm interested in tragedy right is yeah. that, that that i'm i think it helps us to see the the beauty and truth and stuff as much as it does to like focus on the, the misery which i'm also quite partial to yeah but i mean even really removed in a completely different country it had an effect i feel i felt in the population you know everyone everyone was like everyone was watching the news all the time you know no one watches the news right we all avoid the news as much as possible everyone was talking about it was thinking about it people felt genuinely unsafe you know which is wasn't even inaccurate really when you consider the london bombings a few years later right so i mean it was it you know our complicity or at least relationship whichever way you want to see it with America did mean that this country was a target too and is a target too yeah and yeah it was an intense moment here but I mean there it must have been yeah yeah I think if I hadn't been at my school um, my perspective of it probably would have been quite different but it was an international school so you know like the girl next to me had been carried across Ethiopia for three months as a newborn baby in her mother's arms because her father and her grandfather had just been the victims of political assassinations. Like, just the the stories and experiences of the people I went to school with were such that I don't think any of us were surprised. Right. And it wasn't really the first time many of us had seen an act of violence. Right. No, I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, and again, that gives you an interesting perspective on, on that moment. And okay. I guess was part of the, the, the reason that you uh, had the, the, the wits about you to be crafty at that moment, you know, to go, oh, I can see how this could, you know, what, what could be done here. To, and I don't think it's a, I think it's, you know, there are, there are ethical questions around talking to the, to the kids. Sort of, sort the specific reason I did it is because every kid that I printed um, was calling for calm. Right. Well, that's and calling excellent. for peace, and yeah. that was the reason I did it. I was like, actually, I think George Bush of all people needs to 
No. Exactly. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think there's ethical questions, but there's also big ethical reasons for doing something like that. Like that, we we if we allow the voices of the media to be the ones who <laughs> are the worst, then we, you know we're really screwed. I mean, as it is, they are the voices of the media, regardless. You know, yeah. you can do something on the fringes of media and get some voice, some stuff out to some people, but you can't ever really get it out to the to the people, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the. Like so, did you always want to be a writer then? Uh, around fifteen, I kind of toyed with being a journalist, but it was more the fact that at the time I was living in a country where I didn't have a work visa, so the I had to be crafty about trying to find a way to make money and right. selling articles freelance. You were getting one hundred and fifty bucks an article, which at fifteen is a lot of money, so I didn't have to do it all that often. Yeah. And then I went to uni to train as a lawyer and um, specialised in human rights and stuff, wanted to work the NGO route, but when I started working for NGOs, I realised it, um, it's not at all what it looks like from the outside. So uh, I went into working in the care industry and I did a, a master's in social work, but I decided if I was gonna do any kind of social work or management position, I needed to see what it was like as a frontline carer first. Right. Um, and I did that for six years in all aspects of the industry and then hit burnout and became a professional poet and my newest show is about, about that six that. years in the care industry yeah so i mean when you say the care industry like do you want to break that down a bit what kind of jobs did you so do so i years? started off working in a house with five non-verbal doubly incontinent wheelchair bound people with cerebral palsy and epilepsy and then i worked with adults with severe disabilities and severe learning difficulties for a number of years and then i went into rape crisis centers and domestic violence shelters and by the end i was working on the psych ward of a prison hospital it's hard to imagine how you could not write, how you could write anything that isn't political really <laughs> <laughs> with, with your life experience well this this show is interesting to write because it's set up as a murder trial and the two characters are the lawyer representing the state and the care worker representing the care industry. And it was interesting going back to my law degree and I don't want it to be a one-sided show. I right. want, like, initially there was going to be an audience vote at the end and I wanted the state to win just as often as the care worker did because it is a complicated is- issue. Definitely a complicated issue. Um, so it was, it was interesting going back that far and using that, that legal side of my brain again and going, right, how do I make the state not an asshole when it comes to welfare? Because that's not an easy job. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it depends which state you're 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 taking as well. Like the, the, the state in the UK the Tory at the moment. Yeah, the current Tory government. I, I don't know how. Well, I'm interested to see how you can make that sympathetic. I really am. Well, you <laughs> should come 1.40 at the Banshee Labyrinth every day, August 2nd to 24th, yeah. and it's free. Well, you should go to that, and then you can have like a, a, a burger in between and come to Stand Up Tragedy at 7.30. Or, right, you can get out my <laughs> show at 2.40, have a burger, come to my next show ah. at 5.30, which is Around the World, No Mistakes, um, which is at The Pilgrim. Get out of that and then go to Stand Up Tragedy. That's a really good, that's a really good triple bill. Um, and you up at, you're, are they both on the free fringe? Then? Yeah. So yeah, there you go. F- free, excellent, uh, free shows. Uh, but pay, pay, please, please do pay at the end because uh, it's a desperate time in a way up there as well as oh, a lot of fun, right? God, yeah. <laughs> it's like trying to make sure you can actually eat once a day. Yeah, that's the, the aim. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal, that's the dream. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to, to see how you, how you, how you make this government's welfare, uh, sympathetic but uh i mean i guess there's a there's a lot that, what, what do you what are you trying to say i guess with this show i mean you want to keep it ambiguous about i guess right. the intention was to demonstrate the realities of mm. being a frontline care worker mm. and demonstrating specifically the legal realities because i frequently got told during my t- training that care workers are the most likely group of employed people to end up in prison right and, you know, with the the woman who headed um, Haringey Council is right. back in the papers again over yeah. Baby B, yeah. the, the so- social worker 
got four years. Everyone else got golden handshakes, a million yeah. quid, and onto other jobs. When fundamentally, the social worker said, "You know, I've got too many cases. Yeah. Stuff's falling through the cracks." I mean, I feel this way about that case as well. My mum was a social worker, right, for years and years. So I'm, 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 I'm immersed somewhat in some of the debates around this stuff. And I worked with kids. I worked with the under five. I've, I've done, uh, you know, uh, child protection courses. I'm aware of the terrible and very different. No, if you want to to question humanity, go on a child protection course. Um, yeah. But 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 uh, I did feel very strongly for her that like it's a, the system is so busted, yeah, right? Like, that taking individuals from it and saying like yeah. it couldn't happen to anybody with with the amount of workload, paperwork, confusion that's yeah. rife throughout the public sector, not just and even the, the care. The biggest series. thing, what they keep coming back to over everything, and what I always heard was, you know. Um, if you're aware of any procedures or codes being broken or anything, even like basically if anything's a little bit dodgy, you have to report it. But here's the thing, like, because I did a master in social work, I was registered with the GSCC. Not all care workers are. But if you are registered with the GSCC, if someone makes a complaint on any member of your team, your registering is at risk. So if you complain about your boss or your company doing something that's against the code, you can be banned from doing your job for 10 years. Right. And yet, if something then goes wrong, even if you did your best, and you personally did nothing wrong, you can be held criminally liable for the fact that you didn't report your initial suspicion, even though just reporting that suspicion puts your career under threat for a period of 10 years. What the fuck? It's a it's a strange, very strange environment for people who, uh, I mean, because I worked in the public sector and in libraries and children's work, um, and I I see and you know my girlfriend works in schools and I see so many areas of the public sector and as I say my mum was a social worker, um, and everybody goes into those professions nearly everybody goes into those professions because they want to actually help people or like do something worthwhile, yeah. and it's so hard to help people and do something worthwhile when you're in those professions and then you are also at massive risk of like as you yeah. say criminal proceedings as well as you know career damaging uh, and you're hugely hamstrung by the codes the codes are ridiculous you know like like it's illegal to give to CPR to someone who's still in a seizure and if you do you can be prosecuted but as we all know you know some forms of epileptic seizures tonic clonics will stop you breathing and at four minutes of no breathing brain damage starts kicking into someone so if it hits four minutes and their seizure is beginning to cease they're almost out of it but they're not out of it fully and you know every second counts in terms of them starting to breathe again you can't do anything by law right right. and it's the difference between vegetable and you know someone who can recover and can recover fully from what was just a seizure and you know the amount of medical training that you need to have to to deal with an epileptic seizure legally, and the fact that you have to be reassessed every three years. Can we not trust these people to make a decision? Well, there's this weird idea that uh, that it's that perfection is achievable. That we can we can save everybody. That we can actually like uh, interact with the world and manage to 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 win. Right? It's a it's a sort of battle that we're facing where we can't necessarily do that every time. So I think yeah. that some sympathy and understanding for the complicated decisions that well, are made problem, on the ground by people is, is the problem is the lacking. fact that that you know the name of it is care standards. Care is not standard. Right, that's a great... The problem's in the title. Like, you can't... Yeah, the idea that you can keep people safe with bureaucracy... Yeah. It just astonishes me. Right. No, absolutely. And I, 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 yeah, fully agree with that. And I've I've found that the bureaucracy only ever makes it harder to do your job, whatever that job is. Uh, And it's, yeah, it's a crippling situation. And it doesn't seem like any government that we have feels differently about this. Like, it's like the... Everybody likes to think of the Tories as like, uh, um, you know, at, like anti-state involvement, but they they don't get rid of the bureaucracy in any way. They just no, change it. They, they just change it. everything you have to do. And so you, that's the other thing that happens to people in the in the public sector. Every couple of years, everything that they're supposed to do gets absolutely changed, and they have to do a whole load of new things. And they always have to be up on the new policy, and they can't just settle into the groove of doing a job and working out how it works, which affects their life as well as their work life but yeah it's yeah 
And it's same in the care system, especially because, you know, we're both beholden to EU directives coming in and changing everything as well. So right. You never know whether you're coming and going. Yeah, and that's it. And the policy will completely change. And it's it, they go too far. Like a, a few years ago, they were doing like a course with uh, my part at my partner's school, like teaching the uh, the teachers to touch children because they they had been so um, d- sort of afraid and the, the the actual legislation had been for a while that you couldn't like even like like as you say it's an unreasonable thing to like not pick up a child if they fall over right not to give kids a hug and actually you know policy changed luckily to the point of view of yeah we should be uh hugging children and like supporting them physically as 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 our, as carers of those children um but then they had to teach people how to do it do you know what i mean because they had been taught not to do it for so yeah. long it's so strange it's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> they um they have this thing in the care industry, um, which is under EU law. They brought in tendering, and once you bring it in, you have to do it every three years. And tendering means the entire industry has to rebid for their contracts, and 10% of the industry is cut wholesale. Which, if you're cutting 10% of something every three years while not reducing the amount of service users, like that's just going to end up badly. But the way it worked was that every company had to rebid to keep looking for the service users they'd always looked after including like my company actually had to fight to be allowed to keep looking after the service users who set up the company that's very strange very strange yeah yeah I'm like they are our board of trustees like are you kidding me that is very strange it's a it, yeah it's a very strange environment really now you did six years in the in the care industry yeah and then you left when you started you, you were looking to experience what it's like on the floor with an idea that you might go into the sort of the, the, the management side of it but you chose not to do that you chose to become a spoken word artist yeah how how did that decision go and what why why, why did you make it uh, because <laughs> i am interested in affecting change and i realized that even at the management level there's no way to affect any necessary change in the care industry and because I could no longer contribute to what is effectively the neglect of people because of policy and because of purse watches. A lot of spoken words people, at least in Scotland, are in care work as well just because it's shift work, you can leave and do gigs, you can start to tour. Right. So I got to a point where I was beginning to make more and more money off touring and um, it seemed financially viable to start doing this full time. So. I did that. Yeah, it's a brave move, but it's a sort of, I've made a similar move uh, for sort of similar reasons in, in lots of ways. Um, myself recently, although without the, uh, I don't know the, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not as much in the performance game as I am in in sort of other affiliated areas of the arts. Was poetry there with you all the way through this process? Then. Or? Yeah, I wrote my first poem for a bet when I was 21, and. It was a hobby that I took more and more seriously from, say, 2006 to 2010. And around end of 2010, I started taking it seriously. And had you had much experience of poetry before that? Well, I wrote my first poem when I was 21, and then I entered a slam with it the next day. Right. And, and that was it. But before that, no, I'd never written a poem or anything. And you never just, been to a slam. A lot of people I've spoken to who, who are into spoken word have that kind of moment where they, they yeah, do a slam for whatever reason and then they get yeah. the bug from that. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like a, any any of the performance kind of areas. Like, I'm sure stand-up comedy is the same. You do a gig, it goes well. You get the bug the next time. It doesn't well, necessarily go as well, but you've already got the bug. I don't think that's necessarily what happens with spoken word. I think the thing about spoken word is that it's the only thing left where the random person on the street can walk into a room and say whatever they want to say to an utterly silent group of strangers who will listen yeah. and who will think about what you've said. And I think if you do that once, it just it, it stuns you because that's such a rare privilege. And, like, singer-songwriters get talked over in bars the lyrics aren't listened to. For sure. Stand I've had that comedians. experience many times. Yeah. <laughs> Stand-up comedians have to be funny. Right. Spoken word is the only thing where Joe Bloggs can have silence and, and actually get a voice. And, and you you get that once and you don't let it go. Yeah. 
I mean, I see a similar thing happen because I run a true storytelling night for Spark London and I see a similar sort of thing with that. Anyone can stand up and tell their story. Once they've told their story, the experience of people listening to their life just it becomes addictive and yeah. people have to come back and come back and do it again and again and again yeah and, and that, that's the again the thing that I like about that night is that it is everyday people as a rule you know occasionally performers rock up and their, their stories are just as valid and all that stuff but most it's it's just everyday people and that's a great thing to see in a room and rare thing yeah. to see in a room and yeah you're right that happens at spoken word slam nights that I've been to you know you get people coming along so we're in my back garden uh, which is why there's an aeroplane flying overhead you've done journalism before so you were already kind of engaging with words did you write other th- other stuff before that? nope and I was a bad journalist uh, <laughs> my I come from a family full of writers and they always joked from like my school essays and stuff that um, I must have been adopted or left on the on the porch because I couldn't write I, I literally I remember reading my first poem to my mum when I was 21 and she went Good Lord, it wasn't awful. Like, <laughs> it was it was shocking to to everyone in my family that I, I actually can do the poem thing, but it is the only kind of writing I'm even vaguely decent at. You're you're more than vaguely decent, but I mean that's that's fine. You don't need to slot into every kind of writing. It's good to find your your niche if that's your niche. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's interesting though. So you didn't really make much work until you were 21 then I guess no and then you sort of got the bug for it and carried on doing it yeah yeah most most people though not all but most people I talk to who are writers have got like when I was five I did whatever yeah yeah no I'm way behind <laughs> that's, that's all right though that's a, that's and the, one of the thing I always think about writing as well the interesting thing is that it's one of those things where lo- you do improve like just by aging whether you've done any writing or not like so you come in at a higher level than you would do just because life experience kind of connects with that exactly that's the thing about poetry poetry is all about life experience so there are these you know amazing 18 19 year olds even 24 year olds coming up the pike who are phenomenal writers and i am scared shitless looking at them (laughs) yeah but while the one advantage they have over me is time because they've got more of it the one advantage I have over them is time because I've had more of it. Right. And I like the I came up in the Scottish slam scene initially and I think that really helped me out because it's very different now, but when I was in it, I was the youngest person in it by really quite a long way. And if you're slamming against someone who's fifty five, they have so much more to say about yeah. the world than you and it's gonna be so much wiser that you really need to push yourself to even have a chance of hanging in there. Yeah, although it's an interesting thing, though, because they may have more to say about the world as in they've lived 55 years, but they're less likely to have an understanding of what it's like on the kind of crux of culture, where I think, which is what you're at when you're a teenager, you know, you're yeah. really experiencing all the forces in an intense way and you have no power. But I uh, wasn't a teenager, so I, sure. miss, I miss that stage so you're like of the just powerful out writing. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was screwed coming and going. But it's, it's useful because in a scene like that, gimmickry doesn't fly, and I think... The the big problem with spoken word in the UK, the only problem, is that there are quite a few places where gimmickry does better than it should. And I think that that prevents people from getting better. I think the most growing I've ever done as a writer was the one year I lived in the same city as Ross Sutherland because when you're put in the company of a phenomenal writer who's just light years ahead of you, for that long a period, you inevitably raise your game. And I think where gimmickry does well, it brings the scene down because then poets start doing gimmick shit just because they, they want to do well. Right. And it's writers who are a lot better than that, who are bowing down to their audience rather than expecting the audience to come meet them where they are. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, like, one of the things that you have sort of expressed in during this conversation is that you're like interested in in affecting change is that something that you feel poetry can do or is that just i I think where where are you on that one (laughs) i don't think it can in the west i don't think we're taking it seriously enough and i don't think we're respecting it but internationally it's something that is affecting change there is a massive spoken word scene in jordan that is all female and it's where women are going to talk about getting rights and stuff and you know there's LGBT communities in Eastern Europe and in Russia are using spoken word and they're they're risking their necks to go to spoken word nights. Like there are places in the world where this is being used as a political tool. Because 
we've seen from Upworthy and, you know, Shane Coyzans to this guy getting 8 million hits on YouTube. If you say something well, you say it concisely and you say it in a way that is moving, people respond to that, whether they like poetry normally or not. Mm. It's, I think it's a very powerful tool for getting people to listen. I think it's a tool that can go viral and I think in the West we're wasting it. Yeah, it's a very direct kind of form of art that means that it can express people's lived experience in a way that we don't like we, we need we yeah. need to hear these people's lived experience I mean it's like it's like um, Talha Hassan who uh, was in Guantanamo Bay from this country he's a poet and he wrote poetry and that's part of the, I think part of the reason that he's been released recently and I think it's, just, it's a it's it's interesting that that we always think of poetry as like dusty books like culturally speaking but actually it's people fighting for their lives yeah <laughs> where it's you know where, where it, and it does yeah where it has an effect on culture and can connect yeah yeah i mean i'm not saying that i'm not i'm not necessarily dismissing dusty books or saying every poetry like there's no validity in poetry that isn't fighting for its life but you know that's the area we forget i think when i we, think, we think page poetry is more about the art these days and where dissent is coming from and where it's being used as a political tool is more in in spoken words right no that's really true and it's i mean and it is a place and part of what you're saying about anyone can stand up it has meant that it is a place where you do get a lot more voices right a lot more yeah. like lgbtqi voices and uh, and and different mi- minority groups within a culture get to speak get to be heard and everybody has to listen to them for yeah. you know, that their set and, and it makes you realize things it wasn't until i started doing stuff in the states that i realized how invisible any element of being transgender is in UK society and that's changed a little bit over the last six months but not hugely and I would consider myself quite uh, a liberal person I'm gay myself and yet I it hadn't occurred to me how invisible trans people are in our country yeah right well yeah people are often uh, yeah leave the uh, leave the tea out of Stonewall don't they Uh, when making a critique of it Um, and yeah it, it it's it's interesting that even within like queer circles like yeah uh, trans people are marginalized and there's a lot of questionable behavior by people who've got through into the into yeah. the castle and then they're drawing the drawbridge up rather than leaving it open for other people who are struggling like worse than them now yeah it's an interesting sort of moment for that where you st- and there's so many splits within culture for that reason that so many people have got in the castle that you see this in feminism as well that you know white liberal feminists are like right we've got ours we're going to fight for uh, equal pay which is a great important issue don't get me wrong but it's not as pressing in some ways as the other issues that they're not necessarily fighting for because they're not experiencing that life you know yeah and people who say like uh, feminism is working and this and, and is and it's pretty much like uh, there's a lot of people who say, oh, feminism's happened now, we've got equal society, fine, uh, and not looking outside their bubbles, right? It's fine if you both read The Guardian and you both do the housework and, you you know, whatever. Uh, it's not it's not a reality for a lot of people, even yeah. in this country, right, And let alone in globally. It's a, a very kind of complicated time for that. Like, yeah. I see a lot of people who I agree with on lots of areas shouting at each other and think, oh, uh, <laughs> how do I stop them shouting at each other? And the problem is you can't stop and shouting at each other so easily by saying, hey, guys, check your privilege, because that really pisses people off, even though it's a pertinent thing for them to think. Um, anyway, if you're a middle-class white guy, you really shouldn't be telling people to check your privilege. Yeah. You know, so it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, and it's, so and that that area of your life, I guess, is that, like, that's something that you... I mean, I don't know. I haven't really... It's not really... It, it factors into your poetry as in it's a part of your life, right? But, you, you know, just as in these kind of conversations, I don't like to say, so, you know, Sophia, what's it like to be gay? You know, it's a <laughs> ridiculous question. What I like about having conversations with people of any kind of minority group, if we want to call them minorities, but there's... I don't know. I think it's more complicated than even that. Like, I don't even like the term minority group, but is that, you know, people don't know uh, their, the sexuality or race of my guest unless it comes up in yeah. conversation as part of their life. So, you know, and I'm always in, like, two minds whether I want people to even even mention it, you know, yeah. uh, because I kind of like the idea of people not being able to make any assumptions, you know. But, yeah. 
like do you make explicitly like political stuff around your sexuality or do you just like slot it in in your I life? I think the only times um, I don't actually have that many uh, <laughs> gay poems. Right. I guess. Keith, Keith um, Jarrett's uh, brilliant assessment of gay, <laughs> yeah. the gay poem is, is great. I think one, uh, one of them, well, two of them are just love poems because, you know, when yeah. you're in love with someone, right. that happens. And then the other two of them are more about etymology. I've got a poem about the word dyke and a new poem about the word faggot just because I'm really interested in words and what they mean and the roots of them and, and how they develop over time to mean different things. The, the reason faggot happened as a poem was because of something another poet said on the internet, but in, in the course of wanting to respond to his stupid comment in poem form, I um, just Googled the word faggot, and from the 16th century until the 1920s, the word faggot was a contemptuous term for women. Right. Which is fascinating. Right. It and is... I had no idea its use in the gay man sense was as recent, like less than the last 100 years. It, yeah, that's very. That's really interesting. And yeah. there are, I think there are a lot of words that etym etymologically can be traced, like that they're now opp oppressive words for one group, but they originated with being oppressive words for women or not. Well, I really, I want to do, people. I want to do a poem about the word revolution because I find it really interesting that, as well as a word about political change, it's a word about movement specifically relating to movement that begins and ends in the exact same place with no forward progress. Interesting. I like that observation, right? Because, yeah, that's what history pretty much is. Yeah. And it's frustrating, you know, as someone who wants to affect change. Uh, I, I, I'm not as active as you are, but I want to affect change. And I look at the world and I go, well... Every time a change has been affected in history, it has had that revolution element of going back to sort of where it started. Yeah. And it kind of makes you sort of wonder how you break that cycle, that literal cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of there's a, a Chumbawamba did a song about revolution that is like, yeah, about that cycle that never ends. Um, that's reminded me of there. So, yeah, it's. It's, well, the time is, is, has flown by and it's been a real pleasure to get better acquainted with you today. And a hot day to be getting acquainted with someone and you've sort of, you've, you're sort of like discombobulated by, like you've been touring for ages. So, you know, and this is an early morning uh, conversation. <laughs> so thanks so much for like uh, putting yourself through that experience of going, ah, oh, I've got to go and talk for an hour. That's all right. Thank you for having me. I am... Um... I had to wake up early anyway to kick Monkey Poet off my couch, so... Right, who's directing your, your new show? Yeah, but so. he was down working with his director because his new show premieres tonight in uh, Manchester. Oh, cool. And, uh, right, I mean, uh, the, uh, Monkey Poet is one of these interesting people who I... I know everyone who knows him, but I've never actually... I've met him, but I've never seen his show. Um, I'm, so I'm going to definitely catch it this you time. You want to I'm catch it. 300 to 1 is brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's mad. Well, I've heard so many good things about him, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking him out. Um, so, that, yeah, the last question that I ask uh, all my guests is, do you have anything to plug? So we've sort of covered some of this, but you I should I do. I will sure plug it again. Oh, yeah. I'm, doing, ooh, I'm doing a gig tomorrow, actually. Um, I well, can't remember where. This won't come out before then, so you're... you're I don't, don't remember where anyway. That's fine. <laughs> uh, August 2nd to the 24th in Edinburgh, the Banshee Labyrinth, at 1.40 every day. I'm doing Can't Care, Won't Care, which is new, but it's not shit, so come see that, because it's free. And then from the 9th to the 24th, at 5.30 every day, I'm doing Around the World Nate Mistakes at The Pilgrim, which is just around the corner from the Banshee. Come see that. It's got two awards, so it can't be shit. And I strongly recommend that one. I, I, I'm sure I recommend both, but I've only seen one. <laughs> <laughs> and then in December, my book, Opposite the Tour Bus, comes out on Burning Eye Press, so buy that. Yeah, well, brilliant. And, and do you have, like, a website they can find you at? Or? I don't. There is a website out there for me. It's nothing to do with me. I don't know yeah, who set it Yeah, that's always weird. <laughs> it's a little bit I remember strange. when I first booked you, I used that, like, link, and you were like, uh, that's not actually my site. Yeah, it's I'm trying to deal with that. thing to happen. I've got uh, facebook.com forward slash Sophia Walker is my artist page, and I am at Poet Walker on Twitter, and I'm too disorganised to have anything else. Yeah, and, I mean, and as I've said, like, already 
we're doing stand-up tragedy at the Ban- also at the Banshee Labyrinth from the 2nd till the 24th of August at 7.30 every day and it's going to be a different lineup every day and some of those at least one of those lineups but I'm, I'm going to try and find another slot for you uh, but at least one of those lineups will, will involve Sophia so you should come along to that too um, and yeah the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience Uh, Goodbye. Bye, everybody. This weekend is when the Edinburgh Fringe begins. So Sophia is going to be performing two shows which you should get along to. And you should also come along and see Stand Up Tragedy. And Sophia Walker will be performing with us on the 6th and the 23rd of August. So if you want to catch 10 minutes of tragedy from Sophia, come along to those shows. But we've got a different lineup every single night. So it's always worth coming and checking out the tragedy while you're in Edinburgh. Check out www.standuptragedy.co.uk for more details. If you want to help me make the tragedy happen, please consider donating to the PayPal button on that account because it's hard work getting all this together. This year, for me as a gamble, I don't know if it's going to pay off, but certainly I am doing it. I have no choice now. This is what is happening. And the shows are going to be great. And if you want to see a bit more Getting Better Acquainted, you can see that from the 18th to the 22nd of August at 3.15pm at the Royal Oak. And that's also part of the free thing. So come on down and get better acquainted with me. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.